Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Just Work Podcast. I am Kim Scott, and I'm here with... Wesley Faulkner. I am a developer relations professional and a community manager, and I am happy to be on the show. And we have a guest, Russ Lairway, near and dear to my heart. Russ and I have worked together for many years, and uh, I know Russ is going to be radically candid when he gives me some feedback on the reading and uh, Russ, and then I'd love to talk to you, Russ, if you're all right, about some of the some of the work you did uh, to to address bias, prejudice, bullying, and increase representation. At um, are we allowed to say the name of the company? It's gonna it, we're gonna end up saying it anyway. But I think yeah, okay, at yeah, Qualtrics, good... which is also a company near and dear yeah. to my heart. It's okay to say Qualtrics. Uh, that that's a it's a phenomenal case study <laughs> that we'll we'll get into. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and maybe you'll tell some stories, maybe you won't. But Wesley and Russ, are you all prepared to listen to a very brief reading and give me some give me some feedback on it? Yes, absolutely. And uh, it'll give me some time to come up with some hard questions for Russ when we proceed. Awesome. Okay. So what I want to read about today is is kind of how what to say when you don't know what to say, which is often the case, at least with me. Uh, in the face of bias. So it's, it's, um, I want to read just a few paragraphs about an I statement. An I statement is a good way to respond to bias because it offers your perspective on a situation, giving the other person a new lens through which to understand what's happening. Whether you are a leader, an upstander, or the person harmed, you can use an I statement to help the person who said or did the bias thing notice their mistake. The easiest I statement is the simple factual correction. For example, when someone has made a false assumption about a person's role in an organization based on race or gender, I am not the decider here, she is, or I don't work here. In a case where a person has said something insensitive, it can show how what was said landed for you. I don't think you meant that the way it sounded to me, or... I don't think you'll take me seriously when you call me honey, or I don't think calling her honey sounds quite right, or I am not sure why you think I'm angry. I am not even raising my voice, or I don't think they sound angry. They are not even raising their voice. An I statement does not call the person out and invites the person in to understand your perspective. Starting with the word I helps a person consider things from your point of view to understand why what they said or did seemed biased to you. An I statement is a generous response to someone else's unconscious bias. It helps them learn. Another benefit of an I statement is that it's a good way to figure out whether you're dealing with bias or something worse. If people respond apologetically, it will confirm your diagnosis of unconscious bias. If they double down or go on the attack, then you're no, then you'll know you're dealing with prejudice or bullying. So lay it on me. What do you all think? The first thing I want to emphasize that you talked about, just highlight. Like I, I agree. I, I'm sure Russ is going to take a, a majority of this, so I'm just I'm going to take the softball and okay. say that the part that says that. Uh, if you get a negative response, it confirms that they are uh, practicing um, bullying or prejudice, mm -hmm. um, that that is a gift. And it took me a while to learn that 
to get that confirmation that what am I experiencing is actually true. Um, to have that kind of reinforcement is something that should not be just uh, only um, kind of like you don't just roll yourself in it saying, oh, my gosh, I'm so um, offended or I'm so hurt. Um, but also trying to look at the bright side about it being a gift, saying that there is no confusion, there is no haziness, you have that answer, and it has been confirmed. And uh, that is, yeah. yeah, that is really interesting. I think because I think uh, that's a better way to look at it than the way that I have often looked at it in my life, which is, sometimes I have hesitated to say anything, because for fear that it's not unconscious bias. So in other words, you know, somebody says to me, so like, like I tell a story in the book about the this Mr. Safety Pin. I think we read that last time where someone comes up to me and says, go get me a safety pin. I need a safety pin. And and I that's not my job in the situation to get to get them a safety pin. And I assume that it's sort of unconscious bias. But part of the reason why I'm often afraid to say anything like, oh, I don't work here is that I'm afraid I'll learn. Actually, it's not unconscious bias that I will learn that it's prejudice or that the person will start to bully me and then I'll be mad and then it knocks me off my game. And so I think that I'm going to try to borrow a page out of your book, Wesley, next time and say, it's good to know. It's like, it's better to know than not to know. Yeah. It's like casual or under the breath racism, as opposed to explicit racism. Like, okay. Yeah. Now I know. Yeah. Now I know. Now I know who I'm dealing with. What do you think, Russ? Yeah, I'll tell you. I'll tell you what I love, and I'll, I'll tell you what what maybe I don't love in the spirit of yeah. Excellent. In the spirit of radical. Yeah. Candor. So, I, first thing that I love is just um, it's it's something that's powerful. I think about the whole book, but comes through in this passage, which is we're really arming regular people that are out doing the work, um, that are the people who are encountering these situations. We're arming them with real tools they can use to address these problems, right? Strength yeah. of the, the the whole book, but really pops for me in this example, and and also related, um, you know. So so a lot of the work that I've done is measuring culture, and yeah. um, one of the ways we've we've done that. Uh, this was a colleague of mine came up with this. It was at Qualtrics. It was brilliant. Her name is Alexis Lopez. Um, we asked people three questions around our core values. The first question is, what are you doing? to motivate this core value, you know, kind of specific mm-hmm. terms. What does your immediate working yeah. team do? And then after you answer those two questions, you are in the right to be critical of the company. So for a lot of people, these problems are outside of them. They're over there. There's someone else yeah. to deal with. And when you start giving the regular people doing the work, the tools, it starts to put more accountability for addressing these issues where it belongs, right out on the front line, um, alongside the people who are suffering, you know, some of these um, you know, ranging from microaggressions all the way through to injustices. So that's what I like. Um, what I think, uh, if, if, you know, you're counting on me to be radically candid. I'm always counting on you to be that. I do think this, um, this idea that, you know, there's some inherent protection in making it an I statement. I think you are putting an awful lot of, it's a little naive because in my experience, I can make I statements all day long and folks just don't seem to always be clear that I'm not actually criticized. I'm just making an I statement. One of my favorite examples of this is I'll ask a question and someone will say, that's a great point. I'm like, I, I didn't make a point. I just asked a question and it <laughs> happens like all the time, you know? And so li- little yeah. naive that the other party is capable of discerning that you only made an I statement and didn't sort of project something onto them. Um, yeah. That's a yeah. great point. And then, and then second is, you know, and maybe what is 
you know, something that's less powerful throughout the book is I, I question a little bit how scalable this stuff is. You know, um, on the one hand, if everybody behaved this way, it's actually quite scalable. Um, yeah. uh, on the other hand, how, you know, this is, this feels more like a bottoms up, which is powerful. What are we doing mm-hmm. top down to kind of meet and, and have some, some structure around the, around a problem rather than just having, you know, people out there shooting from the hip with their opinion about what might've happened in some situation. So that's, that's my, that's kind of my gut reaction to the passage. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I mean, one of the problems with the book, I think, is that, you know, Radical Candor was simple. It was a two by two. And this is really a six by four matrix. And so so whenever I'm talking about the things that you can do as, as the person who's harmed or as the upstander, people are thinking, what should leaders be doing? And then when I'm talking about what leaders ought to be doing, people are thinking, you're disempowering me because my leader's not doing that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I don't know, I don't know what the solution is other than to keep reminding people that that like at the bottom of every other page, there is what I call Wesley and I read about this last week, the taxonomy. And the taxonomy is bias, prejudice, bullying, discrimination, harassment, and physical violations. And then Whichever one we're talking about is circled, and whether we're talking about leaders or people harmed or people who cause harm or or upstanders, then th- there'll be that word there. But uh, I, I don't know. It, it, that's the problem. Is, is this thing is like as soon as you push it down in one place, it pops up in a different way in whack-a-mole. a different place. It's like and, whack-a-mole. Yeah, yeah. Whack. I don't yeah, know. this also doesn't cover like contingency of the blowback for these bad interactions, like, what do you yes. do now that you do have this information? Um, yeah. How do you mitigate the harm that you will suffer being in the space or that yeah. you caused by getting confirmation? Uh, how do you move forward? There's th- there's many books as you go deeper into a, uh, each topic and it's almost yeah. impossible, but I think that you'll be in business for the rest of your life, Kim. <laughs> well, I hope also like Russ, there was, there's one, moment when I was saying something on LinkedIn, this was in the, in, uh, it was about radical candor. And I had, I had used the word crazy inappropriately. Uh, you know, tell me why I'm crazy. Where, where, what I meant was tell me why I'm wrong. And, uh, and someone pointed it out to me and I thanked them. And then a bunch of other people thinking that they were defending me jumped in and said, oh, everybody's oversensitive. And now I'm like, oh, it's really hard for me as a woman to respond to this like oversensitive thing. Because I didn't think the person was being oversensitive. I thought the person was giving me good feedback. And you kind of jumped in and you said, look, for the oversensitive crowd, like there's a ROI on, <laughs> on changing your language. It's not that hard to, to use a more precise word. And if that helps everyone feel more included, like, why wouldn't you do that? You know, and so I uh, it's it was it was it was a great upstander moment. Uh, and and it was also like the, the there's a there's always a risk, you know, in, in using an I statement. But one of the things that I've learned over the course of my career is that there's also a risk in remaining silent. And I think that's the one that we don't often calculate the ROI for. Or the, maybe not the return on investment. But, well, yeah, si- um, silence, silence is, is fast, it's fascinating because silence is, I, I think it's the absence of an investment 
in that moment. Yeah. And so it's hard to get yeah. a return on that. And I think a lot of people are making a business decision. There's risks to speaking up. You know, it's a, Wesley just yeah. kind of talked about that a, a moment ago. Um, there's risk to stepping in. There's, um, you know, just look, you're, just think about the reaction you just gave us when, you know, the over, the people jumping in to defend you started, you're like, oh yeah. gosh, look what I start. You know, there's just always, there's just always some, some cost there, but yeah, not speaking up, not speaking up is, um, I mean, we should call it what it is. It's choosing not to make an investment in that other person, in this culture, in this team, in the person who's been harmed, you know, whatever it is by not. Yeah. Up, and then you're, and then you're, and then yourself. I mean, for me, I think the big cost was if I, if I defaulted to silence, the cost of doing that was that I felt like I had lost a sense of agency and that was a cost. At a certain point I became unwilling to, to, to pay. So I did speak up more, but it took me a while to calculate that cost. So there's calculating the ROI of speaking up, and there's also calculating the cost of silence. And I think it's the calculating the cost of silence. That's what I should have said that we don't do often. I want to circle back on what Russ was saying about the scalability of it as well. Um, Mm -hmm. I think in terms of scaling silence, um, I, I can tell you, I've seen it a lot on social media where um, I shouldn't say social media, but more, more of conservative voices where there's a saying of like, why all of a sudden is it wrong for me to say this? Or why all of a sudden are we seeing this, this recasting of characters to be more inclusive? Um, it's because it is the penalty or the, the consequence of people being silenced rather than being silent. But if we don't have that concophony of objection whenever we see wrongdoing, then people will be lulled in a sense of normality and feeling that that is the the default and that's the baseline. And any uh, questioning of that feels absurd because it, it is the norm after it's been established and it's hard to unseat it. And so questioning or or bringing up other perspective does um, it is hard, but the, the long-term effects of not doing it um, are apparent uh, from a sociological perspective. Yeah, I think that, I think that makes sense. And I would say it's not only conservative, often conservatives are very happy to talk about this stuff and, and you have, you know, traditional progressives who are not. So like, uh, uh, I, I think we, I, I think it's, it, 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 this, this stuff happens at all different kinds of places. Of course, I mean, conservative, not necessarily in the political sense, but conservative as in, let's not change things. Yeah. Conservative. But they yeah. both work, in, I guess, in different contexts. Go, Russ. Yeah. I think you're going to say something. No, I just uh, appreciate Kim trying to be careful there. We um, <clears throat> nice. Cl- that was good <laughs> clarification, Wesley. We, we all must be careful never to stereotype even conservatives. And, uh, and so um, I appreciate Kim trying to tighten that up. But, but your, your sort of clarification made a lot of sense, Wesley. Um, more conservative meaning. I'm disinclined to change, not necessarily politically. Got it. So other thoughts on this passage or should we, I think Russ, you have some scalable solutions that you, that I would love to hear about. And I think Wesley would love to hear about, and I bet our listeners would well, love to well, hear yeah, about. Well, yeah, just, but other thoughts on this I, passage? I was just thinking about a, a, a little story, um, you know, of, of a time where I didn't speak up, but it was really for myself. Um, and so, but before I tell this story, I need I need for folks in your audience to understand that 
uh, I'm self-aware. And what I mean by that is I am the mayor of the majority group. I am white, <laughs> cis, straight, neuronormal, able-bodied male. Uh, I'm over 40. Can I can I interject? Can I wave a purple flag? You're the mayor of the overrepresented Great, group. Yeah. However, you you may no longer be the majority. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, there you go. Um, also, uh, neuronormal is a little offensive, but please. So what should what should he say instead, Wesley? You can say neuro, uh, neurotypical. You can say neuromajority. Um, uh, those those are terms that are are okay. Um, but as a person that is uh, neurodivergent, um, saying putting the dichotomy of one is normal and one is abnormal, um, it goes against, I guess, the base philosophy of neurodiversity um, that I subscribe okay. to. So, right. Well, I appreciate um, that. Um, so uh, I'll say neurotypical from now on. Um, so mayor of the majority group, I'm over 40 and I'm a veteran. Veteran I chose um, and over 40 was always going to happen, you know. So um, I was attending a seminar at the Clayman Institute, which is um, – which is at Stanford. It's actually sort of a think tank for best practices around diversity, equity, inclusion. And uh, we had two spots because our company, uh, I was at Qualtrics at the time, we were a customer. And we had two spots and I grabbed our CMO and I said, come on, you're, I think you'll like this. And he'd gotten his MBA at Stanford. So for him, it was a fun trip back. Um, and uh, also uh, uh, an overrepresented uh, group member. And we showed up, there's about 150 people there. And uh, you, you could quickly tell that there were probably 10 of us in, in the end, there were 10 of us that were from this overrepresented category, you know, which by the way is like pretty typical of these events also is we end up often preaching to the evangelized and not enough people like me show up, but that's what we're dealing with. So maybe 150 people, 10 of us are in the overrepresented category and the rest are, you know, people doing the hard work at great companies that are members of the Clayman Institute. So uh, keynote speaker um, is a woman who actually had, she'd done her PhD work, some of her PhD work at Stanford. She actually worked with Carol Dweck on mindset. She's out running her own, um, her own show at a, at a university in the Midwest. Absolute baller, really good speaker and um, quite compelling. So morning sessions are great. We learn a ton. Lunchtime, we're doing some exercises, right? And um, before I tell you about what happened, I have to tell you that long before COVID, uh, I was way ahead of the curve on fist bumping people, way less germ transfer. Um, I can't stand shaking hands. I've been on that for a decade. I just, I need to, I need to say it. I will say that's true. I will confirm that that is, that is a true don't, thing. Don't love to hug. Don't love to shake hands. Real happy to fist bump, way less germ transfer. I would say you hate to hug. I would, I would say you really don't like not a fan. Not a fan. So, um, so as is my custom, it remains my custom and was my custom long before uh, COVID ever came around, I fist bump people as a way to show, you know, it's just similar to a handshake. Hot, nice to meet you, a little bit of enthusiasm, et cetera. So at lunchtime, I had a question for the keynote. Um, our working group had a question. I said, well, let me go ask, let me go ask her. And uh, I walked up and I said, hi, um, Dr. You know, Smith. Um, my name's Russ. And, and she said, yeah, the fist bump guy. And and I just chucked, I laughed it off, you know. It was like, I was like, haha, yeah. Um, but if you think about what had happened was behind my back at this event, um, people, I don't know who, but people had gotten together and decided I'm some bro-y fist bump kind of guy. And like, I'm the least bro-y, like I'm, I'm like the, I'm like the nerdiest, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just not that. I do it because literally for logical reasons, low germ transfer. 
and it was it was a fascinating it was a fascinating moment. I was it wasn't I don't know what you'd call it in in the taxonomy, you know, it was stereotyping or othering of some kind. I'm not sure exactly how we'd categorize it, and I don't want to overdo it. But I but I had two major lessons from that interaction. First, it was a fairly substantial empathy building moment for what it might be like to be in the underrepresented groups all the time. I'll say I, I've had 100, 100% of the time over the last 15 years, at least 50% of my direct reports have been women. And so I tend to have a decent empathy um, toward underrepresented folks, especially especially women. But this moment really you know, sort of showed what it could be like all the time. And second is it, this, this, this one's, I think, far more useful it doesn't matter who composes the majority group. Um, that those people will always create uh, an exclusive environment, almost always by accident. Um, and the idea that there were a bunch of people um, that were in the DEI space that could fairly easily identify me as an overrepresented person and thought, therefore, it's okay to call me the fist bump guy behind my back. It, you know, it just really it's, it spoke like there was an exclusive environment being created there um, for a person who does little more than greet you with a fist bump. So I, I just I sort of I'll share that share that story again. Totally self aware. A lot of times I've told the story before, and I get a little bit about oh boo hoo, you know the straight white guy was othered, you know, and and that's kind of not the point. Like I'm I'm good. I laughed yeah. it off even in the moment, and and just tried to t- take away a couple a couple of learnings. So I don't know I don't know if you all, if either of you have any reactions to that or or any thoughts about the story. But I, but oh by the way, I failed to invest. I failed to respond. I was I was so caught off guard actually. Which is another empathy building moment of you know that's that's got to happen to folks from underrepresented categories yeah. all the time, you know that I never I never responded. In fact, I, I've never told the story. I don't think publicly, um, even this might be the first time I've told the story publicly. Mostly because I didn't want to I didn't want to upset this professor, or upset the people at Clayman. They're good people doing good work, you know. Um, so I don't know. Do you have any? Do you all have any thoughts or questions or comments about that story? I I, I have a couple thoughts. I like I I. Uh, maybe Kim, you're better at diagnosing where this falls, but this was definitely punching down. Um, a person is on stage, you're in the audience, just a relative, like in that situational position, it was definitely punching down. Um, and that, that that's a shame and it shouldn't happen. And it's happened to me several times and it, it's just never feels good that when you have a whole audience of people either pointing, staring, turning heads or laughing um, at your expense. And so, um, yeah, no, sorry. It's, yeah, it's awful. I'm sorry yeah. that happened. And and I, it's painful in particular, the given the topic of the conference, the, yes. the ironies are especially painful. So I have a word for what happened to you, Russ, uh, that I just learned the other day. Um, and it's a form of bullying, but I read this article by Delia Grenville, which I just posted yesterday on LinkedIn, her article, and she wrote about mobbing. And so what happened to you, I think, was sort of mobbing. And what happens with mobbing is a group of people identify someone and they're all going to kind of peck away at that person. <laughs> and and uh, w- and often the goal is actually to drive that person out because either that person is new to the group in some way, or maybe they're trying to affect change in some way, or maybe they're underrepresented along some dimension, or maybe they're a member of a, of a underrepresented, uh, either minority or majority. Uh, and, uh, and so I think, I think that was a special form of bullying called mobbing. That's, that's how I would define it. I don't know. What do you all think? 
That's a good term for it. Um, I, I, I think it fits for a second. I thought you were going to say situation, uh, but <laughs> there was but, also a situation, <laughs> uh, but yeah, the, I, I think that's, that's a good take. What about you, Ross? Russ? Yeah. I, 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 um, <clears throat> I don't want to overstate how I felt. There's, I, I don't, you know, I wasn't particularly broken up about it. I, I really did walk. I mean, this is maybe a, a a form of privilege. Um, I was able to fairly actually easily just sort of step away from it. This stuff doesn't happen to me a lot, these kinds of things. Um, you know, and I was able to fairly quickly actually kind of distance myself from it and learn, but those sound like good. That sounds like a good way to describe it. You know, if, if we're, you know, abstracting up for, I just, I don't, you know, I get a little, when I, you know, Kim, you said, Oh, I'm sorry, this happened. I'm like, you know, it's okay. I'm, I'm really, yeah, no, I know it's, it's a micro, it's a microaggression. And when a microaggression doesn't happen to you all the time, it's remains micro. Yeah. The, the time that a microaggression becomes a macroaggression is when it happens to you every damn yeah. day. And then it becomes like a repetitive. The gif. Session. Yeah, exactly. That gif out there of just a person getting a light tap, a light punch on the arm over and over yeah. and over. And the first 10, <laughs> you know, they don't hurt, but after 24 yeah. hours of that, there's a giant bruise on your arm, you know, and, and exactly. Yeah. And so I, I just, it's important, you know, I, I'm, I'm reluctant to tell this story because audiences are not always, I don't always convey my self-awareness around this. I'm trying so hard to, that I, I am, I am lucky to not have to, you know, endure these kinds of things frequently. Uh, but when, the, but when it happened, I, I, I thought it was important to try to take away a couple learnings. So, um, I think, I think a, a form of bullying makes sense. Um, I think the uh, idea of punching down fits that, Wesley. You said punching down, um, and uh, and that that you know she definitely had way more power in this room uh, than I did. Um, as yeah, you know, I'm just a, a random audience member, you know, and she's the keynote, you know. And so I think yeah. both. I think between you, we probably we have it probably well categorized. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that. Um, and I'll say this, I wish it hadn't happened. In an ideal world, which this world is not, <laughs> it wouldn't have happened. Uh, but I think I think your learnings are exactly right. Uh, the, the empathy that you gain from it is exactly right. And also the fact that any group of people can do this to, uh, to uh, an underrepresented group is really important because then there's you know, there's less self-righteousness when we're, when we're identifying these behaviors, because we all do them sometimes. That's true. We all have a point of privilege in some, some arenas as well. Um, and the, the, the punching down, uh, also talking about laughing it off and, um, it's saying it not affecting you also shows that, uh, withering, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the term withering, where, um, it's actually a medical term saying that the lifespan of people who are uh, minorities is based on the the continuous stress in their system, uh, and it causes a, a short short shorter lifespan. So withering is a is an official term, um, and so knowing that you don't have to have the long term effects of this should also like show how people who are um, underrepresented can actually have some sustained harm that is that can be measurable. Yeah. Um, but just yeah. wanted to say that because I know someone's probably yelling at the the podcast right now about me not bringing it up. So I just wanted to make sure that I at least said that. Yeah, I mean, so it's I think that's a really important point. It's like a paper cut is not that big big of a deal, but death by a thousand paper cuts is a big deal. Is another way of describing. Is that is that what you mean by withering, Wesley, or did I misunderstand? Um. Well, it's more than that. 
Um, because a paper cut happens and then it heals. But um, when we were talking about like cortisol being pumped into your system and yeah. uh, the physiological response, um, the like the PTSD or the, the complex PTSD that people develop in certain yeah. situations that kind of stick with you. Um, that aren't addressed with because sometimes the, the either stigma for getting psychological help or the expense or the time uh, yeah. allows that the, the, those mitigation strategies are kind of out of the reach of people who are in that situation. But um, it's also um, saying that it, it can be cascading. So yeah. um, not just dealing with that situation or in those situations, but it, it's something you carry with you that actually can make you die quicker. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, you're right. You know, and, and calling it death by a thousand paper cuts doesn't do it justice. So thank you for explaining better. Um, so other, other thoughts or should we transition Russ? I would love to, to hear more about the things you did sort of at the leadership level at Qualtrics to try to create a, a more just workplace. Yeah. Yeah, and so so context for this might be if if I offered some criticism around just work being more about empowering you know individuals out in the field, and we and we have this you know whose job is it, um, and we and I think we would yeah. agree it's both and maybe this is a little bit yeah. talking about how to kind of top down. Um, yeah, what leaders? Yeah, and it's inadequate, um, right? You need the you need the kind of behavioral um, interventions you're talking about in just work. Uh, and then you also, I believe, need an overarching sort of more measurable approach. So um, let me start with a, a fun question for you both. And I promise it's fun. Um, uh, have either of you ever, ha has either of you ever had Neapolitan ice cream? Yes. I have. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Has either of Wait, wait, not all of it. I skipped the strawberry. So uh, I have the chocolate and vanilla of Neapolitan okay, ice cream. Okay, so you know what it is. Um, Wesley, do me a favor, just in case there's a listener who doesn't know, what is Neapolitan ice cream? Uh, it is a tub of ice cream with three flavors, vanilla, chocolate, and strawberry. Boom. One container, um, three flavors. Exactly. Yes. Good. Now let me ask you this. Have, has either of you ever had a Neapolitan milkshake? No. Not on purpose. Right. right. Why um, would you do that? Why yeah. would you mix them all together? Um, now, it does exist, unfortunately. Uh, people who like In-N-Out Burger love to tell me this. There's a Neapolitan milkshake available. So um, kind of blows up my metaphor a little, um, but not really. Um, so the reason I like this metaphor is because it's the, there's two, like at the structural level, I find there's two major issues with the DEI problem in a company, right? I'm not, I'm not even talking about at the macro economy level. I think that's much harder to address, but inside a company, it's addressable. The first is um, we don't clearly define each term, D and E and I. Um, we blend them all together like a Neapolitan milkshake, DEI, DEI. And then, by the way, people in our roles that are working on DEI, we ourselves are not precise with our language. So the first problem is we're not careful in defining each term. Actually, I'm not even precious about what the definition of each is, uh, to be totally honest. I just know the first thing that must be done is you must define it. And, and one of the reasons for this, by the way, is because if you want anything to scale, people need to be able to understand it and they need to be, be able to latch onto it. And the less clear you are about something as basic as what does diversity mean, what does equity mean, and what does inclusion mean, the less likely your average person out in the company is to be able to latch on to whatever you're try, trying to do and help, 
And there are a lot more people who would like to help. They just often don't know how. So that's the first major problem. And, and I'll, I'll offer some ideas for uh, definitions here in a moment. And the second biggest problem is once you define each of those terms, three different flavors, one box, um, they are not, none of them is the same. They're all interrelated, of course, one box. Um, you have to develop a measurement plan, in my opinion, uh, for each one, actually. Believe it or not, even inclusion is measurable, and so, which is usually surprises people. And so that's, that's the basics. And, and the number of times, you know, we used to host a uh, DEI summit uh, at Qualtrics. Uh, we call it Ember. Um, held it in a place, held it in Utah, you know, which is a place that could really use it, honestly. And um, <laughs> even the DEI thought leaders that kind of came to this would, would frequently be relatively imprecise in the way they were talking about this. And the emphasis of the, of the day was often much more toward individuals' lived experiences uh, and away from structured problem solving. And I'm not saying there's not room for both. I'm saying that too much of the DEI effort, in my opinion, having seen a number of companies, having actually advised a number of companies, including CHROs, too much of the DEI effort is built more around the anecdotes. And, and the anecdotes are important because they give dimension to the measurements. Uh, you have to be very careful, in my opinion, about pursuing a strategy that it, it, uh, exclusively relies on the anecdotes or the lived experiences of the folks in the underrepresented categories. And, I, and a lot of people don't like what I just said, by the way. I, I, um, uh, what some people hear is no room for lived experience, no room for anecdotes. No, that's not what I'm saying at all. Those give dimension, and they're really important. Um, but without understanding uh, sort of the structural problems in a company, and by the way, being able to identify where they are where there are hot spots, you know, over in the eng team, there's this problem, and over in the sales team, there's this problem. Um, you know, you're you're, you're sort of um, working off. If you're working off anecdotes first, measurements not at all. Uh, you're never going to solve real problems, in my opinion. Um, so that's kind of the the start the starter point. Is there's a approach to this that is? I mean, what I just said is not rocket science. I, I realize I did not just put a rocket into space with that. Like, don't don't please. I hope nobody. But it also is not what's happening out in the world. Um, we, we get into our um, ERGs and we have meetings and we try to do, do good. And, and the CEO appoints someone to be the chief diversity inclusion officer. And that person is often under-resourced. <laughs> and, then, and then off we go, um, often mostly speaking to the evangelized and not bringing along the, the people we need often to bring along, which are folks from the overrepresented or majority group categories. And so just kind of pause there. I, I, I can kind of give you a feel like so doing this and little more, defining and measuring um, some of the things that we changed at Qualtrics in even just a year were unbelievable um, with no like sort of operating plans to make actual changes. We did little more than define and measure. And, you know, the company responded in a pretty, pretty amazing way. But let me, but before I go on, let me just pause and give you both a chance to clean up anything that, uh, if you didn't like anything I said or need to clarify anything I said, you know, go for it. Oh, can I hop in here? Yeah. Um, I, I, I want to tackle the thing that you said at the beginning. And I, of, of course, um, I, I kind of understand your meaning, but I want to give you a chance to clarify. Um, you said that inside a company, it is doable to tackle um, DE and I, not necessarily outside uh, of the company in the greater world, but in the company you can. But people leave companies um, at the end of the day, they, they go home, they go out into the world. And also um, company, or sorry, 
uh, government policy and state policy uh, can affect people who work at a company, um, like thinking about the restriction on abortion laws or uh, the focus on uh, people who are transgender and what rights that they have. Um, how can you tackle those things that are out of the control, but still within your company group when uh, when you can't separate those two? Yeah, great, great clarification. Thanks. I think I, probably two things I'm, I'm thinking. One is I don't have a ton of expertise and I don't feel meaningfully empowered to affect these things on sort of a macroeconomic scale. Uh, I just don't, I don't think I have whatever I need, whatever assets I would require from down, just basic capability uh, through to the connections or ability to persuade or the time of, time of day, you know, uh, time in a day to be able to go affect those things. I, I know, I actually know now how to affect these things inside a company. That's kind of one idea that was on my mind is more, it's more about more of a referendum on my own capabilities than it is about any, you know, actual ability for the world to to be impacted. The second thing I had in my So I think before before the, I think you're saying what you're saying is I can make it better at the company. I can't solve all the problems. I can't. Yeah. 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 And and is that Yeah, is that and I don't right? even want, and then I don't want to sound the other ver- that is right. I don't want to sound o- overly like um, you know, like I'm I can fix a company because with all the progress that we made at Qualtrics you know, like we didn't solve inclusion, we didn't solve equity, we didn't solve diversity, you know, but we made a lot of progress. And so, so I don't even mean I can walk into any company and fix that. I just, I'm trying to be a little bit humble that I don't have what it takes to affect things at a macro level. The second is, you know, when we get into, if we get into equity specifically, the gender pay gap is, is a fascinating example. The way it gets evaluated at the macro level um, may or may not be right. I'm not sure. It's average pay. Average pay inside a company is absolutely the wrong way to evaluate uh, a gender pay gap. You have to evaluate pay at the role and level couplet. So you have two level fives, one's a marketer, one's an engineer. I don't care what category they're from. Um, that engineer is getting paid more on average, period. Then you've got two level five engineers that are both, let's say, um, let's say they're um, white males. Uh, they might be paid a little bit differently because of performance. And so... Um, and, and so I, I, I realize that the um, it's very hard to get underneath the problem of macroeconomic gender pay inequity. I don't I don't even understand how to personally, but inside a company, I know exactly how to get underneath that. And you know, by the way, got to a point where at Qualtrics we were we were able to publicly say we have no gender pay gap, and that was uh, through our own math, and we had it uh, ratified by an external third party, actually Fern Mandelbaum's company, Kim. Uh, Sin.io came in and said, you're right, you're the first tech company in history that doesn't have a gender pay gap. And believe me, we had our average pay for women was lower than our average pay for men. Um, And we had no gender pay gap. And the reason for that is because of our our diversity problem, we had uh, had a higher percentage of women at more junior levels in the company and a much lower percentage of women at more senior levels in the company, you start calculating average pay and it does, it takes two seconds to realize, of course, women are going to have lower average pay. Now that's a problem. That's a diversity problem. It's not an equity problem, actually, in my opinion. And or it might be an equity problem if if women were not getting promoted as quickly. Yeah, as men. and so so we'll, let's go on equity real fast. Just just to, so the reason I say it's measurable is because you can evaluate um, if you use performance ratings, for example, you can measure whether women are systematically, for example, just women. Any take under, any underrepresented category. Most of our work was focused on women at first because we needed to learn how to crawl before we could walk, before we could run. Women were half of humanity, um, and we just thought that made 
uh, sense as a place to start. There was no DEI strategy at Qualtrics before I arrived. And so you can measure um, whether women on average are getting lower performance ratings than men. That shouldn't be. There's no reason to believe that would be happening. You can measure whether um, the expected promotion rates based on your demography, um, whether you're promoting. So we discovered at Qualtrics, actually, multiple times in a row, our women got promoted slightly greater rate than we would have expected. It was probably slightly in the noise, and so we didn't intervene. But um, but exactly, and we all measurable, and and ultimately the big inputs to your pay, by the way, are what level you're hired at. So we intervened on on our especially our senior women leveling um, at the hiring stage, um, whether you're promoted um, and when, and um, and then obviously um, um, uh, your ratings. If you're if you know you have a performance based culture that 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 attempts to pay for performance, uh, these are all things that can very quickly add up to create a gap. And, um, and so what we did was we got very good at measuring each component piece, actually. And so I'll give you, I'll give you an example. We did discover that um, uh, a rating, in the ratings distribution, let's say one through five, there's a d- distribution that you expect. And what we discovered was women were getting fewer of the higher ratings than what we would consider a reasonable or their fair share. But we also discovered that they were getting fewer of the lower ratings than what we would consider their fair share, which fits too very well understood pieces of research, yeah. right? Women tend not, and folks from other rep, underrepresented groups tend not to get the hard conversations because they're usually overrepresented. Bosses are afraid or or uh, unwilling or unable, whatever. And then at the high end, you know, uh, you know, women often don't raise their hand and even just take credit for the work that they did. You know, things like that. So um, we saw it once, Alexis and I. We saw it, and we we said, let's let's see if it happens again because it was. It was a small effect, but these small effects add up at scale. We saw it again and, and, and the next cycle. And so we grabbed our team and we, we introduced training. Um, and we were transparent with our managers. We said, this is what's happening. Nobody's doing this on purpose. We're pretty sure. You know, um, it doesn't, it, you, at scale, you can't identify which managers. You know. But we can say, I want you to see yeah. what's happening here. And we showed our managers and we said, here's, here's some of the likely causes. It's probably unconscious. Um, this is not what we'd expect. And then we corrected it. We corrected it through training, you know, um, to, by training our managers, who are the people that ultimately give the ratings, and then their managers calibrate them. I, I, I don't, don't love that old process, but that's how we did it. And next thing you know, we were able to take that effect out and, and, and kind of get back on track and, and be able to say we had a reasonably, I mean, I, I, somebody that worked there can point to can point to a time when they didn't feel like they were equitably treated. I guarantee it. Uh, so we didn't yeah. solve equity, but at scale, we had what you know would be regarded as an equitable environment by any kind of reasonable sort of assessment. In fact, had a third party who specialized in this say, "You're right. You don't have a gender pay gap." Which you know, in a tech company, I, like it's a miracle. It's a miracle. A you know, deal. it's like a it's like a miracle. <laughs> so just to give an example, how how of when I say things, equity is measurable. You can you can do other things around equity. Um, uh, but but to, like start with these talent processes that are inherently measurable and and by the way subject to all kinds of bias and um, and 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 just kind of start there and and make sure you're doing the, those things well. Yeah, no, I think it's really important. I mean, in in just work when I t- I talk about what leaders could do, I talk about quantify your bias, and that's what you were doing. You were sort of taking a look at who you're bringing in the door, who you're interviewing. Uh, how much you're paying them. So you're looking for a, a pay gap in starting pay. Then you're looking for a pay gap in 
the in, in the ratings, which translate to bonus, I assume, and then also translate to promotion. And if you can manage to flag that for people, then often they'll correct it. That's sort of a, a lot of that stuff is sort of unconscious bias plus power yields discrimination. And that's what happens at most companies is, you know, so, so, like there was one company, Russ, where we both worked, where they asked me to sit in on a promotion committee. And, and there were two people up for promotion, a man and a woman, and they referred to the man as a great leader. And then they referred to the woman as a real mother hen. And I'm like, all right, back up the trains. Who are you going to promote? You know, and that was an example. I mean, that wasn't, uh, and they, and they had, the reason why I was sitting there is that they had quantified their bias. I mean, it didn't take a mathematical genius to figure out there were no women on the, uh, on the CEO's team. Um, so they quantified their bias. And then that was, instead of rolling out training, they brought, they brought me into their, into their promotion meeting. That's one, that's one way to, you know, it's one way to get started. Yeah. Doesn't scale, so that's not a scalable solution, but, uh, but, yeah. <laughs> but we all had a lot of fun. Yeah. Wesley, did you, anything you wanted to pick up on there or? Uh, yeah, I have a lot. I, I know that you you mentioned that you're going to go through some definitions, and I, I know we're going long, but I think it's worth covering. And I just wanted to make sure, one, um, that when you go through the definitions of diversity, equity, and inclusion, that you also uh, go over the definition of an ERG, um, because it's one of those things that I've been at several companies, and the way they think of ERG is it is a, a group where they can bounce off ideas, but sometimes it's uh, the part of the company where the ERG is actually empowered to bring uh, and bubble uh, suggestions up about how to make the company a, a better place. Um, and so I would love for you to cover what you think your definition of that is. And also circling back to a, another thing that you mentioned about like how antidotes are one thing, um, but um, it's important to actually look at the research and your measurements. And I wanted to drop a book that I read called Against Empathy. And it is a really, yes. And it's really great to talk about like how, when you hear a lot of antidotes that it kind of puts a spotlight on the one thing, but makes everything around it dark, just Mm -hmm. like a spotlight. And so wanted to, 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 for those who, who are your naysayers, I would use that as a, a a resource that they can um, make more clear understanding of what you're trying to say. That's, um, so I just want that's to wonderful that because in my experience, the naysayers, it tends, it's, it's very difficult to address because it tends, frankly, it just tends to be emotional. And, um, you know, and, and I, and I, when I say this, I, I in, inadvertently give off the impression that I don't listen. I do all the time. I mean, I had identified listening posts all over the company, literally people that I try to find time to go talk to and make sure I could hear what was happening. Um, so love that because this can take a little bit, maybe a little bit of the, um, it could take a little bit of the, maybe the emotion out of that sort of um, re- reaction that folks have when I, when I sort of downplay, not eliminate, but downplay the anecdotes as the, as the key to the strategy. Um, I'm going to check that book out myself. To your, to your question, yeah, ERG, ERGs get used in all kinds of ways. Um, so I, I think definitionally, I'll just start with a very uh, basic um, tend to be built in a, around an underrepresented category and have budget uh, inside a company. Um, that's the most basic definition I'm aware of. Um, so I'll give an example of 
uh, in ERG, we had a Qualtrics. And I'll give you an example of a group that wanted to make an ERG that we said no. And I'll give you an example of a group that I was very concerned, I was very nervous about actually, but we set it up in the end. So um, we at Qualtrics were headquartered in Utah. Um, we did not have a lot of people of color, of you know any color. Um, and so to build some... And to be fair about... Because you're in Utah, which is what is the the population of Utah is like four million. What yeah, it's about four million. And no, but it's oh what gosh. percentage? It's got to be eighty five. You know, it's very high. I th- yeah. yeah, I think it's, it's very high. I, I actually I don't know it. I should just say I don't know it, but it's very high, and our company reflected that clearly. Um, we had offices in Seattle and Raleigh and other places, but you know, it you, it took two seconds. Where you had better representation. Yeah, but honestly, Kim, it just wasn't it wasn't right. Um, yeah. So, okay. so for example, the, um, we had, uh, Kendra and Alexis, um, Kendra's black Alexis is Latinx and they started an ERG called mosaic because we didn't have, we didn't have enough scale of people of individual <laughs> color. You know, we didn't have like enough, like us Hispanics in the company. We didn't have enough black people to create an individual ERG for each other. So they created a group called mosaic, which by the way, it's still, I'm, I'm actually wearing the t-shirt today still runs today. And that was, a, that was a place where we could build some scale and try to affect um, issues for people of color at the company through that ERG. Um, that's an example. That was one of our first ones. We, of course, had a, a, a women's leadership group. That one was the very first ERG um, at Qualtrics. Um, then what people don't understand a lot of times is these are not just, these are not affinity groups. So you are really interested, <laughs> you're really interested in guns. Uh, you don't get to create an ERG around your interest in guns. You can go talk to other employees somewhere about guns. I don't care. Like, I, I, I'm, uh, I'm not very sensitive about guns. Um, um, but, but like, it's not an ERG. Uh, you're not underrepresented in any way. And so, so just, just to get it clear. But the ERG that gave me a lot of, um, it gave, I really worried about this one. And I actually, I'm not proud of this. I actually put a lot of roadblocks in front of these, these folks. Um, a, a, a Mormon employee, a Jewish employee, and a Muslim employee came to me and wanted to start a religious ERG. And is this a joke or are you serious? Yeah, I swear. I swear. That's, that's a, yeah. Okay. And, they, and I knew all three of them real well, and they were like incredible people. And um, I just think that's, that's important. So what some listeners would know is being in Utah, we have a fairly significant Mormon population. And what people might also know is Mormons have a practice where when you turn 18, you go on a mission very often, not always. And your job on the mission is to evangelize. Uh, they, they literally count baptisms that they get, converting people to Mormonism. So this was part of the reason I was very concerned. And um, we had a, every ERG had to write a charter first. What's, what's the point? What are you trying to do? What do you want to accomplish? How will you operate? Um, and I, I really, the, my most important point to that is like, we have to have a no debate and a no, evangelize, no evangelizing rule here. We can't, you know, and they were like, fine, we just want a place to talk about fellowship and spirituality and um, and it was smart of them to put, you know, three pretty distinct, you know, a Christian, uh, a Christian Judaism and, you know, is- Islamic faith together um, to come and set this thing up. But I put a lot of roadblocks in front of them. And by the way, our LGBTQ plus um, Q pride, it was called, um, you know, through their leadership express- expressed a great deal of concern over starting a religiously oriented ERG. And it's not we all it doesn't take more than two seconds to understand why that might be. Um, but one of the leaders in the LGBTQ plus group went over, talked to the people who were trying to form the new ERG around religion and, you know, 
cross-examined them and came away feeling pretty good about their intentions. And, and we ultimately made it work. Um, so, so that was a long way. So I'm sorry, Wesley, that was a long-winded way around. So the definition tends to be built around an underrepresented category, has budget, and then, yeah, ideally has a voice that, you know, ideally the CEO can hear. Um, you know, I think if I could draw it up, um, I would say, and then the CEO in an ideal world has the combination. They have a clear sense of the anecdotes and the experiences of those folks at the company um, through the ERG, right? Um, and then also has the measurements. And, and both of those things are probably a little bit imperfect. By the way, the, the leadership for the ERG might sort of soften to the CEO. They might sort of soften some of the experience of folks. It might not even just be, you know, um, that the anecdotes don't necessarily play out at scale in the measurements. They, they might actually, because they're talking to the CEO, it's scary. And, you know, can we really say our truth? Things like that. They might actually soften what's what's happening in the company. So there's just, you know, some risk there. And then there's risk in the measurements and that you do, you kind of lack empathy, you lack the anecdotes, you lack the real stories from the real employees out there, you know, doing the real work. And I think in an ideal world, CEO listens to both um, and can put that together and then, you know, have some sort of capacity to, um, in my in my ideal, set company goals to improve the measurements um, around these, these, these problems once we've become convinced they're there and they need addressing. Um, the CEO doesn't engage that way, by the way. That, forget resourcing the head of DEI. Forget, forget the year. Like if the CEO slash CEO's team doesn't believe they have a big obligation to engage on this stuff, um, in my experience, little will change. I have one one last question before I, I, this is before we, I, I toss it to Kim, and you can see if you want to wrap up. But um, you you talked about measurement, and I was just curious in your measurement rubric, are you not just measuring positive things in terms of like are we increasing re representation? Are we getting closer to parity? Do you also measure the negative things that you want to decrease? Um, like, and and how do you do that if yeah. you do? I think for, I think a lot of those. So so um, for, first of all, in, in representation specifically, um, something we did that took. By the way, took the CEO at the time was Ryan Smith. Um, took him being bought into, you know, to kind of point to a CEO who did the right thing here. We set, um, for diversity specifically, we set targets for women, not quotas. Um, that's when you start to head toward tokenism, targets, measurements. Um, for women, total women at the company, women at the management level, and women at the executive level. And you can guess what those those looked like. When you, when you measure, but, by the way, so fairly decent representation sort of total company, but a major drop-off when you got to the management level and then an unbelievable drop-off to executive and board. Um, but Wesley, kind of your point, um, you, you could just about sprain your biceps tendon, patting yourself on the back for having great representation of women at the company, let's say. And then you look and you see there's this, first of all, one minus that number is effectively not the women, which was way more than, than women. And then also you look, if you look at it and you see that this drop off at management level, that's a negative. Like what is happening that is causing us to turn away from women to become, it should look, it should be straight up and down. Right. So, so just for example, you're inherently measuring the negative. Um, even in the equitable outcomes of your talent process, if you just start there, um, we discovered, we discovered a gender bias in our ratings. Um, 
that's and then we just said we have to solve it. Gender bias in our ratings is a massively it's a big problem, you know. Um, and I'm happy we were able to fix it, but like that that's the give and take. The things you're talking about, I think, fall into the inclusion bucket. Inclusion tends to be the are, are often inclusion tends to be the least intuitive thing to measure. Um, one of the things that uh, the, that company has done, Qualtrics has done for customers, not just internally. We we dog fooded this stuff. Is devise um, with with people who do this work, like methodologists, research, real researchers. There's a ton of them on staff there. Um, basically, a roughly anywhere from ten to twenty question inclusion index that has a super strong relationship with employee engagement, quantitative relationship with employee engagement, which is actually really that's the measurement we always optimize for in everything we did under when I when I was chief people officer. And um, and it, and the, the questions are pretty rangy, but they get underneath. Play, they get underneath feelings of inclusion, feelings of uh, where you la- lack a feeling of belonging or you lack a feeling of inclusion. And they come through loud and clear. In fact, the way they're often measured, Wesley, is it's red, gray, and blue. Red being the people who answered in the well, negative, blue being people answered in the positive, and gray being neutral. Yeah, go ahead. And what are the questions? Start, start, yeah, well, just really quickly, just just to clarify the clarity is just that what you're talking about is measuring like inclusion and how people feel in one way that's a lagging indicator of the environment so my question about the measuring of the negative is like for instance are you checking your job posting for keyword terms that might exclude some groups are you um, doing some screening on interviews for those of the majority to make sure that they are not Harboring, harboring any uh, negative bias or prejudice. Uh, just the things in terms of the environment itself, measuring those negatives to make sure those decrease, not just the satisfaction and the good things go up, but what are you measuring on the bad things and quantifying and then seeing if those go down? Yeah, I think I might just reject that. The, the positive and negatives always sit on a continuum for every everything you do. So I think when if we measure good things. We attempted to measure bad things. We just happened to get a good outcome. Um, I, I, I'm not, I might not be understand, but let me tell you some of the things we did on the way in. Um, so there's a great, we used greenhouse and greenhouse has a pretty cool add on where you can, um, you can survey your funnel and you can look for drop off based on any underrepresented category. So we, we, we were able to see, first of all, um, where we, we, uh, where we have, and you know, if you see, um, drop off of 25% from, step three to step four, but then for one group, you see it's 64%. Like you've got an unconscious bias problem, period. And then you have to go, you have to go hack that problem. You have to solve it. And then you have to keep measuring it. Um, we did do the work of, um, putting all of our job recs through There's a bunch of tools that do that. Um, it didn't yield it. It wasn't like particularly effective to be totally honest. Um, but we did it. Um, so I wouldn't call that as a, a major leverage point for us. I think a lot of people really like that stuff and it, maybe there's better tools now, maybe AI will make this better. Um, but the place where I thought, what did you use? Did you use Textio? I think maybe it was remember. Textio. The, my, my boss at the time was a woman named Julie Larson Green. She had a connection at one of the companies that did this. And so we, we, it just was, yeah. um, it didn't yield as much for us, um, as we thought it would. We thought it was a pretty leveraged investment, but it, it yielded, it yielded very, we were sort of able to kind of AB test and we just didn't see a ton of value. Um, I'm not saying that those things aren't valuable. I'm saying we didn't see it. Um, where we saw a ton of value was measuring our funnel and watching the drop-off rates. And then that's a trade, yeah. then that's a, a training issue. And again, transparency with the hiring managers that this is what we're doing at scale, um, probably unconsciously, and it's not acceptable. 
Um, all the way down to on the way in, Wesley, kind of your point, we had a hiring committee and we carved off our, what we called our leadership hiring. So level five and up. And we specifically, the best we could, it was actually quite difficult to do off of a resume. Best we could do, we tried to identify specifically if someone was in an upper underrepresented category, if they were willing to share that or not. And we specifically tried to evaluate. So, so what was most common was a woman was being underleveled. And we devised a five-part leveling rubric. And, um, you know, it's knowledge, skills, and ability, years of experience. Those are not always the same, but so you take those. Um, the first and most important part of the rubric is what was the role budgeted for? So I don't, if you have 50 years of experience and you apply for a sales development rep job, sorry, you're not getting paid for 50 years of experience. You're getting paid as an SDR. So that's first budgeted, second, knowledge, skills, and ability, third, years of experience. Um, then we did an internal equity check. Um, like if you come in as a four and the rest of the team doing the same work or fives, you, you got an instant problem on your team. Um, and then last, uh, which we tried to never use, um, but we, we put it in there was competitive considerations, meaning do we have to overpay just to get this kind of unicorn type person? That's a, that's a bad loop, by the way, if you do that over and over, that favors overrepresented, you know, majority group overrepresented people over and over and over. But you actually needed to be able to do that very infrequent. We tried real hard never to use that one. So, so put a leveling rubric in place. So I, I'm giving you some, I'm just trying to give you a little bit of color here that we had a lot of ways that we tried to affect these things from inputs to the environment uh, and then beyond kind of the company, you know, and, but, but one, one caution for an audience trying to make change is, gosh, if the, if the, the most important lesson we learned is you got to do one good one that your theory is some, that something's leveraged and do like one leveraged thing at a time. Like it seems so silly, but I'm telling you that saying we have goals for representation for women, total women, women at management, women exec in one year with no operating plans to affect that. We just rolled it out. I couldn't even believe it. I'm sitting there refreshing the slide before all hands. I'm like, somebody's going to delete this. I, I like wrote these goals on our slide. I'm like, somebody's going to delete it. We had no idea how to do it. I'm telling you, we had no idea. We had no muscle. I keep waiting for someone to just get in there and delete it. And I'm like, oh my gosh, it's going out like this. I'm going to be presenting this to our company, which means we're on the hook. Like you can't walk that back, which was part of my, my you know. And, um, and then that year with no operating capability in that moment to do this, um, we had five times the rate of change of our previous 10-year average for women in the company. At both, And by the way, at management wow. and at... Um, um, total women in the company that also happened to be in that same year, five times the U S labor market change and, and kind of women in the workforce. And basically we told Personally. our managers, you're getting measured on this. And we then gave them tools. We didn't just leave them flapping in the breeze, but we, we gave them tools and we kept measuring, we kept measuring, we reported out, we were accountable. It wasn't working by May, by the way, nothing's changing by May, <laughs> man, you know, and then people finally get the, Oh, we mean it. You know, yeah. and so, so like, just to give you a feel and, and that wasn't fancy. I'm telling you, it wasn't fancy. It was, I'm not even exaggerating in January. We just set goals and said, we're going to measure this. And then we figured out how to measure it. Yeah, you get, this is an example. You get what you measure, yeah. right? Yeah. I and mean, there were problems, you know, you can imagine all the problems that, you know, were happening out in the field. Um, you know, you have a hiring manager say to a woman candidate, I'm, I mean, I got to interview you because you're a woman, you know, I got it and I got to go. <laughs> And I got to go, you know, like, I, I don't want to, I'm trying very hard not to project perfection. We didn't solve any yeah. of this stuff, but that's, gosh, progress isn't about perfection, is it? It's, um, it's about trying to make leveraged investments and then being really honest with yourselves only through measurement, in my opinion, whether they're working. And then when they're not flush them or tinker, and when they are, put more wood behind those 
those arrows and let's go, you know? So anyway, I, I, I could go on. I love, I do love this topic. I love the problem of it at scale. I, I wish I felt like I could do more at a macroeconomic level, Wesley. I just feel really just ill-equipped, but at companies, you know, I really feel like it can be addressed. You know, all the people who are listening who feel like there's just futility, I, I'd rather paint a picture of optimism that no, it's it's there, it's right there. We can do it. We can do it. Like, and and we could we can do it. And we just have to do it together. We got to do it patiently. We got to be smart. And I think if we shift our emphasis toward measurement, uh, I think you know it makes it easier for others to latch on. Makes it easier easier for others to help, and uh, and it makes it easier for us to determine whether we're making progress. Yeah. And by you mean do it, what you mean by do it is we can make it better, not we can fix everything. Yeah. we Like, I think it's really important. Like you're still going to have bias, prejudice, bullying. Like it's, it's not going to be perfect, but if you make it better, like that is to be, yeah. that is to be celebrated. I, yeah. That- I do that all the time. I, I get excited and optimistic and I convey, I've solved equity. I've solved inclusion. <laughs> you know, like that's just not what I mean. I, but what you said is perfect. We can make tangible, clear improvements for people who are often um, suffering in the workplace in a way they just don't need to. Yeah. Sorry, Wesley, you were going to, you were going to chime in there and I, I think I ran right over you. No. Oh no, no, no. Uh, Kim, just tossing it to you. I think that's a great way to end it. Like we can do this. Uh, you, you get what you measure the, you know, me, I'm a writer. I love the anecdotes, but I also love the measurements and, uh, and quantifying your bias is really an important way to solve, I think, some of what's most insidious in the in the workplace, which is almost it's almost like unconscious discrimination, but that's still discrimination. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. I don't I don't know. I don't know how you normally end these, so I don't I'm I'm inclined to just be quiet. But but mostly <laughs> just Well we end them by requesting by the, the, the yeah, thank you for being on the show. Thank you uh, for sharing your thoughts and your words today. Um, if someone wanted to get more of your thoughts, how would they get in touch with you? I mean, yeah, easiest person on earth. You can find me on Twitter. You can find me at my website's whentheywinyouwin.com. Um, so that's the title of, of my book. Um, easy to find on Twitter um, also. Um, so Russ at whentheywinyouwin.com. Um, I'm begging for grace. I'm, I'm begging for grace when people ping me. I'm, I'm okay being held accountable. Like Wesley gave me a really nice correction on neuronormal versus neurotypical. Took it on board. Happy to be corrected when that's required, but I just I, I just hope folks understand my heart's in the right place. I just like many of us, I I make oh, mistakes course. in discussing these things, and I don't and uh, happy to be held accountable, but I don't mean anything by it. I don't mean to. to when, when my when my kids say something, I ask them. I said, "Who's perfect?" And they say, "No." And I said, "That's right. No one's yeah. perfect." And uh, and people make mistakes, and if you if that crushes you, then you can't move on. Uh, and if you would like to chime in, or if you want to have a correction for Russ, you can email us at hello at justworktogether.com. And we hope to hear from you. Thanks everyone for listening. And Russ, thanks for joining us today. And always a pleasure, Wesley. Take care. Thank you. Take care. Bye. <laughs>